Well, brothers and sisters, I'm thankful, thankful to be in front of you this morning. I want to thank uh, especially uh, the Halls and Slim uh, over the course of this past week for helping me, Desiree, and Jasmine out in the midst of the snowpocalypse or Snowbid 21. All right. Throwing hands in the name of the Lord. Catholic priests and young boys. 20 years, 700 victims of sexual abuse by those who worked or volunteered in Southern Baptist churches. Mark Driscoll, Tulian Chavichin, Jerry Falwell Jr., Ravi Zacharias. In the last few years, the picture of the fallen minister has become an all too common one. It, it often happens for two reasons, sexual immorality and misuse of authority. Sordid and sickening stories of pastors abusing women, men, and children. Frightening stories of pastors steamrolling their elders and suppressing the complaints of their members abound. And fill our minds with apprehension when we consider the church. But in many ways, both of those come down to really one category of sin. The misuse of power. But this is not this is not just about accountability. It can, it can it can be very easy to hide in structural solutions and say, well, if they just had the right people around them, things would have been different. Well, there's no guarantee of that. Often predators can use systems to groom victims and manipulate people into protecting them when they ought to be condemned. Abuse is abuse, and it's unspeakably evil. So then what do we do in the midst of what is often frightening and discouraging? In a world of toxic conflict, how do we actually disagree? In a world of sin and within a body of believers that's not entirely free from the presence of sin, how do we bear witness? When shame is heaped upon the name of Christ by scandal within, what guides us to, pre to prevent it? This morning, as we begin to recover from a week of frigid temperatures, I, I want us to ask the question, how do Christians fight? And so my sermon is titled, Throwing Hands in the Name of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to focus on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 reads as follows. When, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open the word to us this morning. Reveal to us how you would have us engage in conflict 
But Lord, first and foremost, point us to your Son in all things. We pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. So this morning, we're going to talk about when to fight, where to fight, and how to fight. And so, and so when do we fight? Often. Where should we fight each other? In-house. And how should we fight each other? As Christians. Now I've gotta I've gotta I've gotta explain each of those things. And so I'm using I'm using the word fight, but what I'm talking about here is conflict, not just not just disagreement. So so we can disagree about about mode of baptism, we can disagree about fa our favorite book of the old testament, we can disagree over whether or not Steph Curry is the greatest shooter of all time. You could be wrong, but we can disagree. When when, when we're talking about conflict, we're talking about disagreements that escalate to the point of threatening relationships and threatening our witness to the world and to one another. So that's the kind of conflict that we're talking about. So in asking, so in asking the question, when to fight? 1 Corinthians 6 is a great introduction to this conversation because Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians is almost entirely about the different dimensions of church conflict. When Paul wrote the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians, he wrote it like he did most of the New Testament epistles. He wrote it as an occasional text. He wrote it to a particular church at a particular time for a particular reason. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't apply it. It's just important for us to understand that sometimes things are written for us without being necessarily written to us. But in this case, Paul had spent more than a year and a half with the church at Corinth, teaching them the gospel, teaching them how to apply it. And he had an expectation that when he left, that they would continue to mature and grow in the faith. And so when he returned to check on them, he was sorely disappointed. Because he returned to a church that was characterized by division by sexual immorality, by, by litigiousness, by abuse of the sacraments, by moral laxity, all kinds of things. The apostle was not pleased. And unfortunately, when people consider the church today, particularly us, the American church, they can think and see the same things. They can see white Christian nationalism rushing the capital. They can see sexual abuse in the church. They can see the victimization of children in the church. They see the diminishment and suppression of women in the church. They see domestic abuse in the church. They see the narrative, we don't talk about these things in the church. And when they see conflict in the church, some of them see the framework that's set in Tobe Mwigwe's song, Try Jesus. If you don't know the song, uh, what, it, it begins with, try Jesus, don't try me, because I throw hands. For those of you who don't know, throwing hands means fighting. I got to make sure I translate for some. I know, I love you. And I submit to you that that, that, is, what the, that is what upsets the apostle. Unchristian forms of conflict. Take a look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Stop right there. He's just, he's just done in 1 Corinthians 5. He's rebuked the church for allowing a man to sleep with his stepmother without any consequence. He's made the very strong admonition. He said, don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother 
if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. And so there are things that the name of Christian ought not be associated with. And Paul lists them there. But that's the general. Then he moves into the interpersonal. And so I want to draw a distinction here between what's going on here and what goes on in Matthew 18. If you've ever thought about church discipline, you've heard of Matthew 18, when Jesus, when Jesus outlines the process. So, so let's say that someone sins against you. Your first, the first thing you want to do is go to them. And then if they don't listen, then you, you grab a few witnesses and go to them again. And then if they don't listen then, then you take it to the church. And if they don't listen then, then Jesus says that you treat that person like a Gentile and a tax collector. Now that's an that's an indictment. I don't I don't really have time to go into here, but the but the point is that you treat this person as though they're not a member of the covenant community. Now, this is a particular situation. In this situation, someone has sinned against you. Now, if that's the case, you go to the person first. You don't go behind their back. You don't offer it as a prayer request in small group. You know what that's like. Some, you, you don't email your elders about that person before you actually talk to them. You don't go to your friends about them. All of those responses are, what are, are what's called gossip. You go to them. And you follow those other steps if that doesn't work. Now, of course, even that has, has some exceptions. If it's, if it's literally unsafe for you to go to that person, for example, in cases of abuse, then definitely go above that person's head. But, but, but that's, that's the process of church discipline that Jesus lays, 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 lays forward. But Paul's talking about a, an even broader situation. That text reads basically, when one of you has a, the word is pragma with another, you go to the authorities. So basically, when, when one of you has a thing with somebody else, you go to the feds about it? Really? Now, obviously, we're not talking about crimes here, in which case, obviously, you go to the proper authorities. We're talking about interpersonal conflict. We're talking about things that are guaranteed to transpire in human relationships. And so when you meet with fellow Christians and inevitably have these disputes, what do you do? First, we have to expect them. Jesus prays for unity, for unity in John 17, a kind of unity that we, unfortunately, can only imagine now. He prays powerfully that we might be one as he and the Father are one, which is ridiculous. Our unity is to be a mirror of Trinitarian unity, that, that primal and greatest of all mysteries. We're to be that close. That's wild. But if it's Jesus's prayer, then it ought to be our gospel goal. It ought to be the destination to which we point. And so when we meet with conflict with one another, which we definitely will, we don't, we don't have the freedom to push it under the rug. We don't have the freedom to act as though it doesn't exist. We have the freedom to confront it. Yes, even those of us who rebel in being non-confrontational. I'm looking at the Enneagram nines. So when do we fight? Often. As people with different dispositions, different tendencies, different sins, different gifts, and different perspectives, we're guaranteed to disagree. And so embrace that reality. Don't run from it. But as the body of Christ, where do we air that out? Paul's concern in this passage is that people are doing a whole lot of airing out in front of the world. 
Take a look at that passage again, verses three to six. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? That first part is an eschatological point. That is, it points to our end as a reason for our actions now. And so Paul says, do you not know that we're to judge angels? If you've been united to Christ by faith, then the end that you have to look forward to is, watch, watch this, co-ruler of the universe with the eternal son of God. That is your end. That's what the scriptures say. And if that's true, why embarrass yourself and, the, and, and a fellow co-heir of the gospel? by exposing your triviality to the world. And this, and this risk is compounded on us in the social media age, brothers and sisters. And Paul repeats these words, not only to the shame of the Corinthians, but to our shame. Now I know we treat shame as this thing that we should never talk about, but as I joke with Slim, sometimes shame is an excellent motivator. There are some things that we ought to be ashamed about. We ought to regularly experience conviction of sin and recognition. Uh, we, we, we ought to constantly experience this recognition that we stand before a holy God and that we often break his law to our shame. But we also air out our dirty laundry in unhealthy contexts to our shame. I'm thinking particularly about Facebook and Twitter. I think of a, I, I think of a Washington Post article that was, that was released two days ago with the title, his pastors tried to steer him away from social media rage. He stormed the Capitol anyway. But the first line, Facebook was making him angry. Now, I don't place that shame entirely at the feet of this man, Michael Sparks, who was, the, who was according to the FBI, the first to, the first to walk through a broken window in the Capitol. I don't place it entirely at the feet of his pastor who encouraged him to leave Facebook. There was a community around him that tried to dig into the hard work of rebuking in love. But I want each of you to consider this. Union with Christ means that your actions don't just reflect you. They reflect the gospel. As a matter of fact, that, that may be the only gospel that people may see. And so your witness and the witness of the church writ large are intertwined. So I ask that you I ask that each of us keep that in mind when we interact publicly. And so where's the encouragement within this text? The encouragement is that the Lord has given us a context for redemptive conflict management. And that context is the church. Where should we fight? In-house. Because the community of faith ought to be the spot where you feel most comfortable being most exposed. We're all sinners here, but we are also, hopefully, all sinners who recognize that we are all sinners. And that ought to produce humility rather than an arrogance that pushes us to litigation. We're to judge angels, brothers and sisters. By God's spirit, he has given us resources to be able to judge one another. Now, I know that's I know that might sound I know that might sound weird. We don't normally talk about 
judging in a positive in a positive sense. But that's what the scriptures are telling us. Paul says, you will judge the world and angels. You can judge one another in love. The scriptures have shown us what sin is. And so it is love then for us with truth and grace to drag our brothers and sisters out of sin when we can. And none of this, none of this Christians only love, never judge stuff. There's a difference between righteous judgment and being judgmental. And I know this as somebody who, who spent a lot of time as a deeply judgmental person. This is why Desiree didn't like me when we met in freshman year. I was, I was obnoxious. I, 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 I was all truth and no grace. I was full of fire and brimstone and years of wisdom, mentorship, and deeper relationships have softened, softened the things and hopefully deepened my faith. But, but if we seek wise judgment, we ought to be willing to look to and trust one another. Obviously, none of this negates the work of, of, of expert mediators in our midst. But, but if we're not talking about a crime, we, we ought to be willing to trust our brothers and sisters to wisely guide us in conflict. But when it really comes down to it, when and where to fight our background. Background points to the main point that Paul is making in these eight verses and in this book as a whole. Because of course we're going to fight often. Of course it would be better for us to fight and reunite within the body of Christ, to seek this unity that Christ has set before us. But the question that's really on our minds is, how? How do we fight? Are these hands like are, are these hands like Pokemon cards where you where you can catch them all? Do we passively, aggressively fight, especially when we know that, that, that we're right and the other person is wrong? Do we, do we simmer in resentment? Paul, in these eight verses, places our end before us, yes. But he also places Christ before us to show us how fighting ought to take place. Look at verses two and three again. Do, do you not know? that the saints will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Have you confessed your sin to the Lord and placed your faith in Christ? If so, your future is one of kingship, king. Your future is one of queenship, queen. But it is not a solo rule. It is a communal rule. You and your brothers and sisters in Christ will be co-rulers where your task will be to participate with Christ in the judgment of the world at the end of history. If that's the case, it is absurd that the world should see the church as any less than a beacon of justice and humility. It is absurd that the world should see cover-ups in the church. It is absurd that the world should see that some churches for membership require non-disclosure agreements. It is absurd that the world should think of churches and have their mind filled with examples of greed and sexual immorality, precisely those things that Paul says ought not be associated with the name of Christ. It's not just, it's not, just not ideal, it's absurd. And to add to this, take a look, take a look at verses seven and eight. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? 
Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. I want to go back to that song, Try Jesus. There's another line. He said, turn the other cheek. But that's one part of the Bible that just don't sit right with me. Now, chances are you you actually might be sympathetic with that, with that view. If, if someone comes at you, our first impulse is often just to come right back. After all, the context of Jesus talking about turning the other cheek is basically him saying, if somebody backhands you across the face, don't hit them back. Everything in us teaches us that that response to conflict, it, you, you, someone comes at you, you respond in kind. So, so, so 50, 56 years ago, on February 21st, on this, this day, 1965, I'm sorry, Malcolm X was assassinated. And in, his, and in his speech, a message to the grassroots, he said this, there's nothing in our book, the Quran, that teaches us to suffer peacefully. Our religion teaches us to be intelligent, be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone. But if someone puts his hand on you, send him to the cemetery. That's a good religion. In fact, that's that old time religion. That's the one that Ma and Pa used to talk about, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a head for a head and a life for a life. That's a good religion. Anytime a shepherd, a pastor teaches you not to fight the white man, he's a traitor to you and me. Don't lay down your life all by itself. No, preserve your life. It's the best thing you've got. When we think our character or our persons are being challenged, we go into lockdown mode. We go into the mode that actually that this other Malcolm was preaching. This mode that tells us, if somebody comes at me, I come right back. Unfortunately, in lockdown mode, you matter, and, not, and nobody else does. Now, Paul's upset with the Corinthians, not just because those bearing the name of Christ are responding to insult wrongly. It's that he's upset because they're the ones who actually end up doing the insulting. And that is not fitting for the people of God. But you know what is fitting for the people of God? Being willing to suffer for one another's sake. Do you know what is fitting for the people of God? Standing up for the vulnerable among us rather than siding with the arrogant. Do you know what is fitting for the people of God? Being more willing to suffer wrong and be defrauded than to ever wrong and or defraud anyone. Why? He grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to their own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He was oppressed 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? God the Father sent God the Son to suffer wrong and to be defrauded at a level that we can only imagine. The one worthy of all glory suffered profound shame. The one possessing all riches was humiliated and defrauded of his status and even every last one of his belongings as he hung on that old rugged cross. The one worthy of all praise suffered unspeakable derision. Why? Because of his love for you. Because of his love for his people. To defeat sin and the devil. To free you from slavery. To free you from your slavery to death. From your slavery to the fear of death. And from your slavery to what other people think of you. Why is Paul so upset with the Corinthians? Because the gospel is too beautiful for that. Jesus has brought us together. Jesus has bound us to one another by his spirit. And we allow trivialities to divide us? That don't sound right. As a matter of fact, is this, is this reality that I always remind myself of when we think of especially issues of race, but also just, just Christian reactions to both internal and external critiques of the ways that we failed to be real beacons of the gospel. Often when we come into conflict, defensiveness is our primary response. But brothers and sisters, the only thing worth defending is the gospel. And the people who are most worth defending are those who are more vulnerable than I am. There are always ways for me to learn and to be conformed to the image of the Son. And so how? How do we fight? How do we approach conflict in the family of God? We ought to do so like Christians. We ought to do so like those who live in union with the suffering servant. We ought to do so like those who have seen their Savior crucified, not for his own sin, but for ours. Now, for us as, as Presbyterians, this, 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 this plays out in a particular way. We've got, we, we, we've got kind of three courts of appeal. You've got, you, you've got the elders of this church, which is that, that's, that's level one. Level two is the presbytery, which is all the elders of all the churches in our particular area. And then the level above that is general assemblies, all the elders of all the churches in the entire denomination around the country. But one of the things that that, one of the things that that, 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 that reminds us is that we need this accountability at every single level of this conflict. But it also reminds us that no individual is the head of this church. Christ is. And so at each of these levels, you're going to have people who, people who back you up in the midst of conflict because no conflict that you enter into is just, is just a private deal. Brothers and sisters, this, this series on the church has been about leadership, it's about membership, but it's also about how we treat, it's also about how, just how we treat one another, how we interact with one another. And so when you look in the car next to you, you're seeing someone who's going to live forever. 
you, when, when you have your things with other people, recognize that those other people are precious to the Lord. We're told by Paul in Romans to, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to be your friend or that you have to, or that you should be or should pursue close relationships with everybody. In fact, sometimes the only way to live peaceably with someone is to not have a close relationship with them. But Christ has given us a great gift, a great gift in the church. He's given us other people with whom we can live the Christian life. He's given us, he's given us brothers and sisters to sharpen us as iron sharpens iron. And this is a process of, in, of intense friction, of often abrasive conflict, of heat and of refinement. But the promise is that when you emerge from the crucible of godly community, you will not be beaten down. You will be lifted up. By his spirit, God uses us as indispensable instruments in one another's sanctification. Do not forsake that role, dear brothers and sisters. Conflict is inevitable. But if we do it like Christians, it can be a good thing. Because the Lord can use that fighting to forge even deeper bonds of unity. So try Jesus. And try me. Because I fight. But the day is coming when we won't. Let's pray.